Hello, how are you? Welcome to my silent disco. How are we going? Can you all hear me all right? It's the weirdness of these headphones. I've only done this once before. It makes me feel like a DJ, like Calvin Harris or something up here. It's amazing. Um, so we're going to be talking today about containerizing .NET apps with Amazon EKS. And uh, at the end, we're going to be talking a little bit about AWS Fargate as well. Um, how many people in the room here are .NET developers? Well, then you're in the right place, which is good. I'm also a .NET developer. I've been a developer now for um, quite some time, nearly 20 years. Um, and this is what we're going to be talking about roughly today. Um, how many people are using containers today in their .NET development? OK, about half of you. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about containers and what they, what they are. Um, a very, very brief overview of Docker is just in case there are people which just have not used it or seen it before. Um, we're going to be talking about what the benefits of containerizing.NET are and why you would want to do it in the first place. We're going to look at a little bit about some of the, the products which are around or the services which are around uh, this ecosystem. Um, in particular, we'll look at ECR, which is a, uh, a registry uh, for your containers, and we'll show you how you can integrate with that. Then finally, we'll look at um, EKS and using Kubernetes, our managed Kubernetes service and how you can deploy .NET applications to that, and that being .NET older versions of .NET and also .NET core applications to uh, Kubernetes. Um, I'll also briefly touch on, EK, on ECS, which is an alternative way of, of deploying containers on AWS, um, but that will be very light. I won't be talking too much in depth about that. And then finally, we talk about Fargate and um, the new cool things that you can do with uh, Fargate on both ECS and now EKS as well, as of this morning. Um, so, this is a, an important slide, possibly the most important slide for me personally in the whole deck. I, I need to actually be in the picture. Look, we've got this. This is called my inception slide, and this is uh, me in front of a slide, in front of a slide, in front of a slide, in front of a slide. You'll see that picture goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, it's actually 40 levels deep. That's that, that slide. So it's a quite an important. I'm trying to get to a level 100 with that. Um, it's not nothing to do with .NET or containers. It's just a personal mission. Um, I've been a developer since I was 16 years old. Um, I started as a web developer, really, doing uh, CGI Bin and Perl. Uh, then moved on to PHP. And then someone showed me the door to Microsoft. And uh, I started doing ASP. And then I went to fourguysforroller.com four and learned .NET from that. And I've been developing in the .NET space for over 20 years. I've previously worked as a software engineer at uh, Microsoft um, for eight years. And then I had a brief stint in, in Oracle. And then I've just uh, joined Amazon Web Services about a year and a half ago now. And my whole job at AWS is talking about .NET. So .NET on AWS. So all the different ways that you could use .NET on AWS, that's my job. Talking about that, showing people how to do that sort of stuff. So whether that be serverless, whether it be containers, whether it's Elastic Beanstalk or whatever. Um, so we'll be talking a lot about um, containers in this session, um, but it's just to let you know that you know .NET is a very it's a, AWS is a very good place for .NET. Like lots of uh, our customers are using .NET and using it in interesting and in different ways, from the container platforms to serverless platforms, um, all the way through just to standard EC2 instances. <clears throat> so let's just talk a little bit about containers, uh, in case you haven't used them before. Um, the main benefit being is that containers are sharing you know, a kernel. So uh, rather than a traditional uh, VM where you have the, the uh, hypervisor, where you've got the guest OSs uh, and the virtual machines, which are very heavy, all of which have their own kernel, and they go through to the server, uh, to the underlying operating system, uh, to the underlying um, hardware. With containers, we have this ability to share the kernel, 
And so we are able to have much smaller blocks or much smaller things or objects that we can uh, initialize. And so they're much faster to start generally than virtual, virtual machines. And um, they're very powerful because one of the things which is, is being really popular about containers is the fact that once you've built a container and you've created a container, that container is kind of the same wherever you put it. You know, if you take that container, you build that application inside of a container, you can move it to another machine and guarantee pretty much it's going to behave exactly the same on the other machine as it does on your machine. And that kind of dev workflow of building a container, testing that container, knowing that that's the actual thing, that that object won't change, it's, there's no dependencies outside of the operating system which is relying on, everything which it needs is inside that container and wrapped in that container, makes it extraordinarily powerful for moving these things about. And lots of people are building their uh, application workflows around these. So CI/CD systems are, are heavily invested and built around um, containers. So <clears throat> one of the, the reasons why these, these are becoming extremely popular is because you have this single, well, I think it's because you get this single package, this single artifact that you can distribute. And uh, that makes it easy to send it to other teammates. It's easy to share online. Um, uh, and so forth. And this became very popular in the open source world. It certainly became very popular in the, uh, the Linux world. But .NET was, was sort of slower to catch on. There was a few things which are happening in .NET. Obviously, we have um, .NET Core, which is a, a framework which actually could run on Linux. And so we were able to sort of containerize that. But then um, when we think about older le legacy applications or Windows-based applications, containerizing them has been a challenge. And um, it's only recently in the last couple of years that Microsoft have, have changed the, their server architecture to sort of match some of the stuff that Linux is doing. So it makes containers a useful thing, not only for Linux-based .NET Core applications, but also for full fat framework .NET applications. So um, <clears throat> it's a very lightweight virtualization platform. Um, pretty much everyone which is doing containers is using Docker. There's, there's, there's other containerization Way building, ways of building containers. Um, but generally speaking, in my personal career, I've never built anything but a Docker container. So <laughs> I don't really know anything about the other container platforms. Um, it's become extraordinarily popular as a standard way of building containers. But containers are, you know, in Linux at least, a, a fundamental part of the operating system. And it's actually, there's a brilliant uh, a YouTube video um, about how to build a container in Go from scratch without Docker, just purely building it uh, from the basic fundamentals of, of what Linux has. And actually, it's not as difficult to build a container as you might, might think. But the thing is that Docker's come out and it's become battle-hardened. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of security features and so forth built into Docker. And it's become somewhat of a standard in the industry. Although there's, there's other things which are available. It's an open source uh, platform. It's an Apache uh, 2 license. So you can use it inside of any kind of application. Um, and it's making things a lot simpler. What you can think about a container um, or the image, the Docker image, which makes up a container, is um, I think of it as, as like layers. So you're building up these layers to create a container. Um, it's a union file system which combines to create an image, uh, which is, ends up being our Docker image. It's not important to understand this too much when you're starting out, but it's uh, as you get uh, deeper and understand a little bit more about containers, it's important to understand how they fit together because you can start optimizing for how you build containers and how you pass containers and images and layers around. <clears throat> to create a Docker container, you start with a thing called a Docker file. So a Docker compiler is a construction set, and each line in a Docker file is effectively a creation of a layer. 
inside of a Docker, uh, a Docker container. So here I've got four commands. Um, from is my base layer from Microsoft Windows Server Core. Um, I then run uh, add Windows feature web server to that container. That next step affects the previous layer. So we're basically creating two layers. And then run add Windows features.net framework. That would add a third layer. And finally, it copies um, uh, my application to another place. So there's four different instructions inside of that Docker file. It will create a Docker image which has four layers. <coughs> the Docker layer, the first part of that is the, you know, here we're using Windows Server Core. It's a big, uh, a big container image, seven gigs in that instance. Um, that cr is created into one layer or file system. Then uh, the next commands run, and it's kind of like a diff of the previous file system. So you end up with another layer, which is just a diff, the, the change of the files. And then you have another layer on top of that and another layer on top of that. And the reason why these, these images are built up like that, if you have on a, on a platform, uh, maybe you're building two Docker images and both of them inherit from the Windows Server core layer, you don't need to have that layer twice, even though it's referenced in two different containers, Docker is clever enough to store that layer once and then use it in multiple containers. And what that means is that if you're using, if you're using uh, containers on, on a server where you are, some of your containers are sharing lots of different layers, then it means that they take actually less footprint on the server in you know, physical storage because they're sharing these layers. So Docker has a really intelligent way of sharing all of the different, different layers across Docker images. Um, <clears throat> And, and we end up, there's a little bit of stuff surrounding the, the additional uh, elements of your file system. There's a read-write layer inside of a container. And then fundamentally, that's your Docker container, which you're able to then go and deploy or do something with. So this is maybe a more, uh, uh, a better example of a Docker, uh, Docker file. Um, we've got a few more steps. Um, but this is also multi-build, multi a multi-build file. And you'll notice that there's two from statements. There's one at the top, and there's one a little bit further on down. This is a relatively new feature in Docker, as of a couple of years ago. The concept of multi-stage is that you inherit from a base layer. We then do some stuff in that container. We build our container up. And then we output the files from that container and create a fresh container in the second portion. And the reason we do this multi-stage is because when you're building an image, you might want to be building, you, know, you might need this, this SDK uh, base image. You might need some SDK files to actually build your project. But by the time you actually want to publish your container, you probably don't want all the SDK stuff in the container. You just want, you just want like the, the Svelte version of Windows with the .NET runtime rather than the SDK. And so that's what we're doing here is we're taking two different base layers and we're using one as a, almost a build doc container. And then we take the output files and pass them into the second container, which is what's going to be actually the container that we pass, uh, pass out are the thing that we, we, we go and store in our registry. Um, Multi-stage build is, um, is relatively new, but people have been doing this um, before it was supported directly in Docker. There was other systems which was able to do this sort of concept of building containers and then building containers on top of those containers or the outputs of those containers. And what you'll note is that the, the bottom image there, it's got a base layer, it copies the working directory, creates a working directory. We've got, we copy the build output to that application folder sorry, we expose port 80, and then our entry point to our application is .NET executing a DLL. So this is a .NET core application, but um, ultimately the thing that happens when that Docker container starts up is it's running .NET against a DLL. So um, 
quite straightforward uh, sort of Docker file, uh, and that's a, but a more better example of perhaps how you would actually use a Docker file in, 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 in the real world. So the kind of workflow is we would take a, uh, a base image. So that from statement is taking a base image from somewhere. Usually that comes from somewhere like Docker Hub, which we call a container registry. And this is a store of containers. Now, every, when you say from, you're basically taking it from another container. So from Microsoft.NET 2.1 SDK nano server, that's a container which lives somewhere uh, in some registry. So you're always building containers on top of containers. Um, and you're using a, another person's container as the base layer. Sometimes you'll use a really svelte Alpine version of Linux as your base layer. Sometimes you'll be using a fully fledged version of Windows as your base layer. It really depends on what kind of container you're building, what you need to be able to do with it, and what kind of applications you need to run. Obviously, the bigger the base layer, the bigger the resultant image, and the bigger the resultant container. And um, one of the common problems with building .NET in containers is that many of the, at least, legacy frameworks haven't been built for the world of containers. So it means that you end up with very, very large containers, <coughs> which can be a problem because they're not really, when you have like a 40 gig Docker container, it's difficult to move, it's difficult to copy over the network, it's difficult to use. So um, you will find in, in container, the container world, you can pretty much containerize anything. You containerize legacy applications, you could containerize Oracle databases if you want. Um, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't probably. Um, the worst case is I've seen a customer which had containerized an Oracle, 80 gig Oracle database inside of a single container. It's probably not a great idea to do that. Friends don't let friends put databases inside of containers, in my opinion. Um, so, <coughs> sorry, so we, we pull the base image, we build the image from the Docker file, um, we inspect the container, we attach a volume to the container because obviously. Containers don't have or necessarily have any storage which is permanent. So you might want to attach an actual permanent storage to that container because however you're managing or running or orchestrating your containers, if they fall over, you don't want to lose all of the data which is there. So we have this concept of attaching a volume or attaching a file, file system to your container. And then we would run our container. And if we were in dev working in our dev modes, we'd probably just run it in Docker on our desktops. Um, but if we're going to be putting it into production, we might use any one of a number of container orchestrators. And AWS has more than one container orchestrator. So once you have a Docker container, you can either run it in EKS or, the, um, or ECS, the Elastic Container Service. Um, the reasons why you would do that vary. Um, and generally, we find that customers choose one and stick with that and prefer that one. And then they'll carry on on that journey along that way. Um, but they both do very similar things. So when I talk about what uh, EK, uh, EKS or the Kubernetes service does, you'll find that there's, there's versions or ways of doing that same things inside of um, ECS as well. So let's talk about containerizing .NET applications specifically. Um, now, the reasons why you might want to containerize is the idea of having better, better it's, it's the same reasons why any platform would want to use containers. Um, there's better resource utilization. Um, we have the ability to have um, a consistency uh, of deployment. As soon as you've built a container, it's kind of unchangeable, it's immutable. So you know that you know, nothing's been introduced to that container between dev, test, and prod. Um, there's no more, it works on my machine. It doesn't work on, on, on the actual production server. So there's a much more consistent way of deploying an artifact. Um, 
And because the way that we, we can take these containers and we can use an, an orchestrator like Kubernetes or, or ECS, it becomes far easier to scale these than it is to scale uh, virtual machines. Not only is it easier to orchestrate the scaling, um, they're also quicker to scale and you can get more containers on, on physical servers. So it's got like um, the ability to sort of to squeeze more containers on a single server than you probably would find if you were trying to do that all uh, with just virtual machines. Now, if you're building .NET, you're probably build, building one of two types of .NET. Um, you're either building .NET Core or you're building .NET Windows. How many people are building .NET Windows? And how many people are building .NET Core? Still, like .NET Core is actually ahead there, which is cool. Um, but it means that there's still quite a lot of people which are using .NET uh, and legacy applications. And there's lots of reasons why that is. Sometimes it's the case that you, you, know, you have applications which, are, which just, you just can't port to .NET Core. And I've certainly found that in my, my career. There's lots of still, even in .NET 3, there's still lots of um, namespaces uh, that just can't be ported or you can't have an equivalent in .NET Core. Or maybe you've got a third-party DLL which you just can't port to .NET Core yet. So we always live in a world where there's going to be two project types. There's going to be people which are building in .NET for Windows and .NET Core. Now, .NET Core can run on two operating systems. It can either run on Windows or it can run on Linux. Now, .NET Core that runs on Linux, as soon as it's packaged into a Docker container, it's indistinguishable from a Linux container because it is a Linux container. So <laughs> the, um, whenever you see any sort of framework which talks about um, containers or supporting containers, um, .NET Core in Linux will always work on all of those platforms. Um, there's nothing special about .NET Core which makes it incompatible um, with anything else. So if, if you want to run it on Fargate, if you want to run it on ECS, if you want it on Kubernetes, if you want to run it on any other company's uh, Docker container system, um, it will, it, a .NET Core Linux uh, container will work there. Um, if you're running .NET Windows containers, those containers will only be able to run on hosts on Windows servers. And so that means that um, you need to be using, for .NET Windows containers, you need to be using a service which supports .NET uh, Windows containers or you know, phys physical Windows Docker containers. Um, so that's, they're a completely sort of different thing. You've got Linux containers over in Docker world, which is the common Docker, uh, the Docker sort of Linux thing. That's what everyone, when they call about Docker, that's what they, they're talking about when they talk about containers. And then you've got Docker containers for Windows, which is a different thing. It works in a slightly different way and it's slightly less mature. And so generally speaking, it's possibly a little bit harder sometimes to, to actually build .NET Windows containers. And also I mentioned before that a lot of the actual, the, the, the from, the base layers, those base layers are effectively Windows. And so they're very heavy and they're very large. Seven gig files, it's not uncommon. So when you're doing co common sort of Docker things like do a Docker pull or taking a base image, it can take somewhere up to 15 minutes. Whereas a Linux equivalent of taking a, a Docker pull on a Linux image will only take a matter of seconds. And so it can affect the kind of the workflow a little bit. Um, so you can build uh, two different types of container, one for Windows and one for Linux. It's worth mentioning as well, .NET Core can also run on Windows as well. So you can build .NET Core on Windows as well, just to confuse things and make it a little bit more complicated. And again, that's a case of compatibility. I've certainly built .NET Core applications, especially in 2.1, that only work on Windows because they use certain Windows-based features and they can't, I can't port them to, to the Linux version of .NET Core um, without uh, getting alternative DLL, getting into World of Mono, basically. So um, the base layers for these containers 
there's really four that are commonly used. Um, we have a thing called Windows Server Core, a thing called Nano Server, a thing called Windows, and a thing called Windows IoT Core. And these are base images, and these base images are, um, are maintained by Microsoft and can be used inside of your Docker files. <clears throat> Generally speaking, if you're using Windows Server Core, then that's going to be um, for more traditional .NET applications. If you're building a 4.2 application or a ASP.NET 2.0 application, it's going to have to be using a Windows Server Core uh, base image. Occasionally, you'll find things which, which you need support for, but they're not in that image. Then you might have to drop back into a Windows base image. A Windows base image is massive because it's Windows. It's got everything that Windows has, but it's really compatible. It has literally everything, so it's as if you were running it almost on the server. So it has the full set of Windows APIs. So there's some types of applications which just require certain Windows APIs and you can't patch them or, or, or do anything with them, so you have to use those base layers. If you're building .NET Core applications, then there's an image called Nano Server, which is possibly what you'll be using. And it's like a cut-down version of Windows. It doesn't have um, some of the UI elements and, and some of the features which are in Windows Server and probably are not going to be used by your application. But um, uh, it's a Svelte uh, container, so it's a, a nicer base image which you can use. And then we have Windows IoT Core, which um, is the basis for many IoT uh, sort of Windows projects which use containers. Um, so you probably, if you're building .NET applications, uh, sorry, ASP.NET applications, or, um, and you're not in the IoT space, you're probably not going to use the Windows IoT Core world. So generally speaking, most images that you'll be using are Windows Server Core or Nano Server. And then inside of those, there's lots of different flavors of base image, which have been designed for different kinds of workloads and different start things. So there's like a, a Windows Server Core for ASP.NET. There's a Windows Server Core for WCF. Um, there's a runtime, there's an SDK version, um, maybe you need it in your build containers. There's, there's lots of different types and different flavors that you'll need. So the basic rule is you want to try and use the very smallest uh, base layer that you possibly can in your container because you want to keep your containers as small as possible. And basically you want to use the, the lowest or the smallest version of Windows until you hit a point where you've got an API which isn't supported and then you could like, use a different potential, different base layer. Um, there's also the nano server which have been pre-pitted with different versions of .NET Core. Um, so, and they basically maintain, these, these are all Docker containers effectively. These are custom Docker containers built by Microsoft. And then they host them in their own uh, Microsoft uh, kind of Docker registry, uh, Docker compliant registry, where you can download them. And that's what that mcr.microsoft.com thing is. That's their version of Docker Hub. It's the Microsoft sort of uh, container registry. So you can literally just take that and plug that into the top of your from statement inside of your Docker container, and that would be your base image for your container. Um, so let's take a, a create a .NET Core container. Cool. So over in Visual Studio, we're going to create a web project. And we're going to use an ASP.NET Core web application. Click Next. We're going to give this name customer front end, create. We're going to untick uh, configure for HTTPS and we're going to disable or enable uh, Docker support as well in here. 
Um, we're going to add it manually in a moment. I'm going to choose a web application, a model view uh, controller application. And then I'll go and create that file. Now it's just creating a base uh, skeleton project for me. Now in this project, I'm going to right click and I'm going to go inside. This is inside of Visual Studio. And I'm going to choose um, add uh, Docker support to this application. And it's going to ask me what version of do I want to choose, Linux or Windows? Because this is a .NET Core application. It could run on both. It will then create a Docker file for me in the base of the application. That feature, all it did really was create that file. And here we have our file, which is basically a, a multi-stage build uh, Docker image. And as soon as it loads up, you'll notice at the bottom there, it's starting to build that container already. It's starting to pull in all the basic uh, base images that it needs. And um, we can basically, inside of Visual Studio, press play or press F5, and we could run it inside of a Docker container. Um, we can also, because it's now got this contained Docker image, and I'm using the AWS toolkit, I can now just publish that container to AWS. So I can say, um, this is my Docker repository, customer front end. I'm going to give this Docker container a tag. It might be latest. It could be, I could leave this blank, or it could be a git commit ID, or whatever the, the way you tag your, your container images are. And then I can choose to put it on, as a service on an ECS cluster. Or what I'm going to do is just upload it to the Amazon Elastic Container Registry. So this is a bit like our version of Doc, uh, Docker Hub. Um, it's basically going to upload uh, that. Now, I've sped this up. It takes a little bit longer than this. It's quite a big image. Um, but it ultimately pushes it over to um, the repository. Now, what's cool about the integration we have in Visual Studio is that I don't need to set a thing, anything up in ECR. I didn't need to create a repository or anything. I just pressed the button, and it did all that stuff under the hood. Um, and now what I've got now is this URI, which is basically my base image. So I could do a from that, and that would be a, uh, a, a Docker uh, container. Or I could see Docker pull and pull that image. I could do a Docker run and run that image. And my application now would run on my application as a, as a container inside of a container. Um, we have a nice little sort of UI inside of Visual Studio. This is the AWS team, the AWS toolkit for Visual Studio has built this. And it shows you like, all the images that I have in that particular uh, project. And um, I've got the tag latest on that particular container. But you'll commonly, in a project, have lots of different tags on lots of different types of image. You might have a dev, a test, a prod. Um, I commonly, my tags are actually the git commit ID because I'm not doing, I generally, I'm not doing this in Visual Studio. I'm doing it part of a CICD project. So I'll be checking in my code. And then I would have something go and build my container in a CICD pipeline. And usually, the thing that I would tag uh, my container with would be the git, um, the git uh, commit ID. Uh, of that of, of what I committed. And that means that we can go back to, if I've got a container in production which isn't working right, I can actually go back to what the git commit ID of that container is and figure out why, why it didn't work or why I've broke the build. Yet again, mine. So um, we were building a Linux container there. You saw me building a Linux container on my machine. When I said we're building it, all of that support requires Docker to be running on the host machine. Um, now, Docker on Windows has two modes. I can either be in Linux mode, Linux containers, or I can be in Windows containers mode. To switch it between the two, I need to just go to the bottom of my screen, click on the whale, and choose uh, switch to Windows containers. It gives me a warning about switching to Windows containers. And it takes about 30, 40 seconds, and it's switched to Windows containers. <clears throat> and what this means now is I could build Windows containers, Windows-based images, if I wanted to. So now I can create a .NET container image. And we'll do a similar thing. 
I've got a, a standard, um, this isn't that old, it's a um, uh, 4.7.NET uh, API. And you can see the Docker image is much more, more straightforward. I've got a from base image, I take the source, I uh, take a, a, create a working directory, and then I copy the, um, my, my, com my compiled application into inetpub on that image. Now, if I press the Docker plus, uh, sorry, play button here, it would go and create this image for me. Um, but I'll just show you what, what it's actually gonna be doing behind the scenes. If I open up that folder and then type CMD into that folder, it will open the command line at that folder. That's a trick that you might not know about Windows. Um, if I just put, paste this in Docker build, and I basically pass in the output of my built project, and I'm also gonna tag this image as full fat latest, and then I've passed in some other um, sort of uh, things which are required for the build, um, and we're basically gonna create a build image from that. So it's gonna look at that Docker file in that folder, which I'm in, and it's when it's gonna go build, it's gonna take the project files and it's gonna construct my uh, Docker image. So you'll see that there's a number of steps. Basically, each of those steps is, is it opening and creating that layer. So the first thing it does is goes and takes the, the base image, then it copies to, to inetpub, and then it copies my output, my source, my source, my basically compiled application into inetpub. And then it finally, it tags the image as the Beebs full fat latest, which is the name of my, my image. So I can then just go and say Docker push and push that image, the Beebs uh, full fat latest. And you'll see, because by default, I'm using Docker Hub. I just gave the Beebs full fat and it knew that I was using Docker Hub. So it's gonna actually publish that to Docker Hub. So take that off my laptop and put it to the Docker container registry. And it, it's pushing each individual layer. And the cool thing about that is that if none of those, if, diff, if parts of the layers don't change between builds and pushes, it will only upload the portions that have been changed. So it's not gonna be uploading every single time the base image, for example. Um, but gradually it's gonna go and push that over to, uh, to, uh, to Docker. And so that's basically two kind of different .NET projects. I'm effectively adding a Docker file with a different Docker instructions, and we ultimately end up with a Docker container, a built Docker container, which I then put into um, Amazon Elastic Container Registry, which is what I did on the first instance, or I put it into Docker Hub, which is what I did in the second instance. Um, so Amazon ECR, the Elastic Container Registry, is a fully managed Docker compliant registry. It means you can store Docker images. And the reason you might use this is because ECR is um, private to you. And so it means any containers that you're building are only available to the people that you provide security credentials to. So um, whereas Docker Hub, um, Docker has private repositories and, and so forth, but Docker is very, very popular. Docker Hub is very, very popular with open source containers, which you want to share publicly because it makes it very, very easy to share those containers. Everything, I, when I just push, push that Docker, uh, the Beebs full fat, that's a container that any one of you could go to my Docker Hub repository and pull down yourself and, and start using if you wanted to. Um, so Amazon ECR is kind of like a private version of Docker Hub. And in more sort of uh, enterprise settings, you probably want to be using a private um, uh, container registry. It's fully managed, it's highly available, and it's obviously secure. Um, and it's Docker compliant, so all of the commands work the same. However, it's slightly different in terms of the way you log into it, and um, it's a little bit more tricky to use. And um, uh, let's go and show you how, how that works at the command level. So I, I, I've already done it through, through Visual Studio. I've kind of built 
my Docker container in Visual Studio, and then it did a lot of stuff for me to take that container and put it into ECR. But if I want to do that command line, this is kind of how I would do it. So I actually have to go to the ECR service. I could do this from command line too, but I'm gonna just use the console to do it um, because I'm a GUI kind of person. And I like to click buttons. Um, and I create a repository. Um, I'm gonna call this repository front end. Oh no, I'm not. Full fat, sorry. Um, you can, you know, there's options when you push a, a thing to this repository, you can scan the container image for, for sort of known vulnerabilities and that sort of thing as part of the ECR uh, project. And then um, once I've created the repository, it's, it gives me on Mac and OS Linux um, some command line uh, things I can run to sort of get my, to tag my Docker images, my local Docker images and push them to ECR. So um, there's Mac OS um, and then there's Windows commands. The Windows commands are in PowerShell I actually find it much easier with, with Docker. I really like PowerShell, but I find it much easier with Docker just to use the Docker commands on Windows, the, the, these ones on Windows as well. They all work on Windows, um, so uh, it's fine. Um, the first bit, which it tells you to do this line, which says AWS ECR get login, no include email region West uh, EU West one. What that does is when you, when, you, when, you, when you run that, it will echo a Docker command that you then have to go and execute and that will log you in to your ECR. Um, so uh, you have to be inside of an, you have to be at a command line with AWS, the AWS CLI, and then you run that command, it will output a command that you then run, and then that logs you into your, your ECR cluster, your uh, registry, sorry. I then can build my image. So if I'm inside of a folder, which has got the project already in it, I can say Docker build, um, and then it basically would go and build the project based upon the Docker file. If I've already got an image though, I could just tag that image to be the tag that I need to go and upload it to the to ECR. Tags are really important in Docker. Images are basically these, these sort of objects which contain all of these different layers, but they can have different tags. The same, the same exact image can have completely different tags, and most of the registries use these tags to decide what the image is. So I actually have to tag my image you see on step three there, docker tag, I want to take my local uh, container called full fat latest, and I want to tag it with this long string, which is basically the name for the container in the ECR registry. So it's basically taking one container and just calling it something else. And then once I've called it something else, then I say docker push and give it the long name. And because it's got the sort of uh, AWS, Amazon, docker knows that that's not going to try and push it to docker hub, it's going to try and push it to the ECR uh, repository. And as long as you're logged in at command line, that's going to work and, and upload. If you're not logged in, if you haven't run the first command, for example, then you're going to get security errors and it's going to say you can't push to that repository. So we're going to tag our image. So I'm just going to look at the images on my machine. I'm going to then tag one of those images and I'm going to push it to ECR. So Docker images. See, I've got the Beebs full fat uh, locally. Um, I'm going to take the, the image ID. So tag that image ID. I could use the image repository as name, the name on the first column as well if I wanted to, but um, I like to use the image ID. And then I'm going to tag that with the name of the ECR uh, uh, repository. And now I have locally two. 
Now it's the same image. If you look at the image ID, it's exactly the same image, but it's now tagged as two different things. On my file, on my file system, there's actually one image and it's called two different things. But that means now that I can push that to ECR. So to push the image, I basically do docker push. But what I need to do first is to log in. So to log in, I take that command, which was um, shown before, AWS ECR get login, no include email, region west one. It echoes a Docker command. I copy that Docker command. So you see it's Docker login. And then I paste it in my command line. Boom, and now my command line's logged in to, to that ECR. So now I can um, push that image and to, my, to my repository. So I can say Docker push, that image to, to there, and it knows where to uh, hook it up, and it starts pushing my image uh, over to ECR. So now in uh, ECR, it's starting receiving that image, and it's storing it in my uh, repository. So if I go over to my, my repository there and click refresh, boom, I've got a new container image in my repository, which is cool. And um, that's my image URL, and I can share that with anyone on my team. Um, I could use that as um, the ECR also has an eventing system. So anytime you push an image, you can event things to happen. So you can event a CI/CD pipeline to start building. You can event a scan of the container image. Um, you can do all sorts of things. So if you want to automate your workflow, all of this stuff is, is possible. If you delete an image, you can set an event as well and maybe um, raise a ticket with your operations team as why someone deleted the most important image, which is required for production, for example. You could do those sorts of workflows uh, with it. So now if I want to take that image and push it to Docker Hub, well, it's very similar, but I don't have to have quite the, the complicated um, login procedure. So again, I've got my Docker images locally. I'll go and take this uh, image. Tag that image as something else. Um, <clears throat> I could use latest. I could not include a tag at all on it, or I could just arbitrarily put a tag two, three, four, like whatever I wanted to put as a tag there could, could, be, could be whatever. Now I have multiple images. So if I were to go and do a Docker push and push this now, <clears throat> I'll get an error that are denied. And the reason it is because I logged into ECR. So now I'm going to log back into Docker. And with lock Docker login, it's just a username and password. You don't need that complicated, sort of like more complicated certificate. And now I can do a um, Docker push, and it pushes it over to Docker, this, that image. Um, so now on that container, I have latest. And I also have at the bottom there, um, which for some reason, there we go, um, I have a, another version of that image as well. Um, so this, these tagging of images is really common in workflows. You might tag a, a, GitHub, uh, a GitHub ID as your container name, and then as it moves through the production cycle, maybe from dev to test, you might relabel it, and then finally that, that it'll be changed to a production version. That's a really common workflow. So you actually don't change the image, you just re-tag them as different things, and those different tags um, start up different processes in the CI-CD pipeline. Now you've got your images in either Docker Hub or ECR or whatever container registry that you have. You can even host your own if you want to. Um, I don't know why you want to. Um, 
you then have an option as to how you want to run them in AWS. Do you want to use, use ECS or do you want to use EKS? So ECS has been around longer at Amazon. We've been building it for a long time. We've got customers which are using it at a huge, huge scale. It's extraordinarily battle-hardened. Um, you can be confident that if you're running containers in ECS, it's definitely going to be totally fine. <laughs> it's going to be, we've got all of our biggest customers which use containers are using, uh, are using uh, many of them are using, sorry, ECS. And then we also have um, EKS, which is an open source uh, system, originally came from Google. Uh, it was open sourced, and we have a managed service for, for EKS. And we have some customers doing massive scale on EKS as well. So the choice never is which one scales better, because they both scale pretty well, in my opinion. For most kinds of workloads, you'll be fine. Generally speaking, though, it's kind of, well, which, which platform do you prefer? Do you prefer EKS or do you prefer ECS? Do you have any experience in either one of the other? Um, but fundamentally, they do similar things. So um, you can run .NET Core on Linux containers on both platforms. You can run .NET Core on Windows containers on both platforms. And now you can run .NET Framework full, full Windows containers on both platforms as well. So we've added very recently Windows support to EKS as well. So Windows nodes to EKS. So basically, they, they can do very similar things now. You can run Linux con containers on both of them. You can run Windows containers on both of them. Um, there's, there's, they've, they've got very different ways of orchestrating them, and the file systems are very different, but, but fundamentally, they do the same job. Now, we're going to be talking about EKS for the remainder of this, this talk. So what do we do now? We've got our containers. How do we start using them on, on EKS? The Elastic Kubernetes Service, or Amazon EKS, is a fully managed <laughs> Kubernetes control plane. Kubernetes is a Greek word. My old boss was Greek, and um, he, used to, he used to call it Kubernetes. And I used to make fun of him because I was like, it's not Kubernetes, it's Kubernetes. And he said, it's actually a word in Greek, you idiot. So, <laughs> so he was right. But um, <laughs> I think it's, it's nautical as well. I believe it's like a, it means, it's like the, the, the thing of a, the steering wheel of, steering wheel of a ship. Uh, I don't know. But Kubernetes is, is nautical. Everything in containers is nautical. Docker, whales, um, helm, is, it's all nautical themed. I'm not quite sure why. Um, anyway, Kubernetes is, uh, this is our managed uh, platform. You create a cluster. Uh, in Kubernetes, and then on that cluster, you start running your uh, containers. When I say you create a cluster, you'll create a cluster of, of effectively EC2 instances. These are the worker nodes that's going to run your application, or, or where your containers are actually going to physically live, live. And then we have a managed control plane, which manages the orchestration on those worker nodes. Um, so the way that you interact with, a, uh, with, the, the, with the cluster is through um, command line, generally. And um, you can sort of send instructions to your cluster on how to build uh, your, your, your application. Um, you can run one application on a cluster. You can run multiple applications on a cluster. And many customers will have a single Kubernetes cluster and then run all of their different workloads and different types of applications on, on, those, on those clusters. Um, if you're building on AWS's uh, EKS, um, it's possibly a good, it's, a, it's, it's a really good idea to download this tool um, called EKS CTL, which helps you with the command line aspect of building clusters. Um, it makes it simpler, and I, um, especially if you're going to try using Windows nodes on, on EKS, definitely, definitely uh, download this, because I tried without it, and um, I spent about two days getting it work, getting Windows nodes, Windows nodes working. And then when I actually just used EK, this, this one to build the Windows nodes, it took me literally uh, 10 minutes. 
So there's tons of tons of clever work that have done, done in this to make your life easier. So uh, EKS CTL is a tool that you want to download and you want to use. And all of the examples that I'll show in this talk use this particular command line. So we're going to create a, an Amazon EKS cluster using that tool. Now, the first thing we're going to run is this command, uh, EKS create cluster. We're going to give the name Windows cluster. We're going to use the version of Kubernetes 1.14. Um, it's going to create a node group with standard workers. And the node type it's going to be using is t3.medium uh, instances. It's going to create uh, two nodes uh, with a maximum of three nodes. And it's going to use, an auto, it's going to use the uh, uh, Amazon machine image, um, or it's going to use the, the best one it thinks it's, it's got. And I'm going to create, I'm creating this one in US East 2. Um, now, that usually takes 15 minutes, but this is a video. So it took about 13 seconds, which is good. <laughs> but your, your reality will differ from this. When you run and execute that command, I went and got lunch today to do that. This is cool because you're only ever going to build a cluster once. Well, it's going to be a rare event, but it will take about 15 minutes to build a cluster. So that one command is built as a cluster uh, and a command, and a command, a sort of com a control plane. Um, once, that, um, once you get that bit at the bottom, it's like a tick which says uh, the demo Windows cluster is ready. You're then able to start interacting with that cluster. So I'm going to do two things. I'm going to install these things called VPC controllers. I'm going to be installing Windows nodes on my, EK, my cluster. Usually in, a, in a, a Kubernetes cluster, you have just Linux nodes running Linux containers. But because I want to run Windows containers as well, I'm going to run a mixed cluster. Some of my machines are going to be Linux. Some of them are going to be Windows. And basically, when I create a container, I'm going to say which version of Windows it should it go on Windows or should it go on Linux. I'm going to define that. In my, in my thing. So Kubernetes, when it's going looking through my, um, when it's looking through my definition for my application, it's going to look at the container and it's going to go, oh, this container needs to go on a Windows machine, so I'm going to put that over on Windows. Oh, this one needs to go on Linux, I'm going to put it on Linux. So you can have multiple nodes of different operating systems inside of a Kubernetes cluster. So this VPC controller, what it's doing is it's setting up the networking so that Linux and Windows can, can talk to each other. Um, Again, this is actually, all the rest of it, creating a cluster is really simple, but this piece is, is a one line in, uh, in this, this tool. It actually is a few lines if you want to do it without a tool. So I would just run uh, EKS Utils, install VPC controllers on that particular cluster, and it will go ahead and it will build them. That actually is real time. It's very, very quick what it's doing. And um, it sets up the networking, which is required to run those worker nodes. Now I actually need to go and build some actual worker nodes or to run. So I've got some Linux nodes already set up, which are running the base system uh, of, of, of what I need. It's got some stuff which is operating on sort of Linux nodes. Um, whenever you're building a Windows, even if you're only using Windows containers, you do still need at least one Linux node on your cluster. Um, uh, so uh, for the networking stuff to work. And that's what I've just done there, is installed it on that one single uh, cluster that we've got. Uh, one single node, sorry, that Linux node. And now I'm going to add the Windows nodes to my cluster. To know which uh, node to Windows machine to, to run, I go to this uh, website, and it's got the EKS optimized Windows uh, uh, Amazon machine images names. So it's going to give you like a, an ID for the army based upon the region that you're going to build your cluster in. So I'm building it in sort of US East 2. Um, so I'll go and view I, I am ID, copy and paste that, and I paste it into this, this, this command, which is creating a node group. I'm going to call it demo Windows cluster. And it's going to be basically creating three nodes, T3 mediums. And um, they're going to be using uh, Windows Server 2019 full containers. And I've passed in the, uh, the uh, AMI. 
for that uh, image. So now what I should have is a cluster, an EKS cluster, which has got some Linux nodes in it and some Windows nodes. So I can start deploying an application to it. So <clears throat> if you go to uh, the Microsoft.NET um, Framework samples, they have some images, base images, for lots of different project types. So you can see this Docker pool uh, ASP.NET app. If you run that Docker command on your local Docker machine, it will download that Docker container and run it. So I want to take that Docker container, and I'm going to add it to a Kubernetes uh, YAML file, um, which is uh, all it's got in it is a deployment. Uh, it's got a name, Windows app, and then it's got a container specification. So I'm going to add that particular uh, Docker container as my container specification. I'm going to open up port 80 on that container. And then I'm going to do this. This is really important. I'm going to say that container has to run on Windows. That container can't run on a Linux node. It has to run on a Linux or a Linux. <laughs> it has to run on a, a, a Windows node, not a Linux node. And then I'm going to create a service, and it's going to listen on port 80. And it's basically a load balancer. And that load balancer is going to select the Windows app, which is basically this application container. And it's anything which comes into that load balancer, it's going to forward on to that container. So basically, what I've created is an endpoint for my application. Uh, port 80 endpoint. And it's physically, when I deploy this to Kubernetes, Amazon's going to create a load balancer for me based upon that description. It's going to create a container, a single container at the moment, and it's going to map them together. So whenever I go, go in on the load balancer, it's going to go into the particular application. And that application is going to be running that sample container. So I've got this um, um, image, the Beebs full fat, over on uh, Docker Hub. So I'm going to actually replace that, um, that Microsoft sample image and replace it with this one. So um, if I want to change the, the Docker image, which this application is using, all I have to do is replace that Docker image with my container image. And now all of a sudden, it's going to be running my container. It's no longer going to be running uh, someone else's. And so if you wanted to deploy a new container, generally what you'd be doing is you pass in a new container, or more likely, a container with a new tag, and then deploy that by saying Kubernetes uh, kubectl apply, and apply that Windows file. And basically what's happened in Kubernetes in the cluster, it's deployed the Windows app, and it's deployed the app service. And because I made a modification to the Windows app by changing the container, it's come back and said, you've configured the, the Windows app, and you've, uh, the, the actual um, load balance has been unchanged. Um, I generally work with Kubernetes in this way, is that I have one big YAML file which describes my entire application, and then I apply it all as one. You don't actually need to do that. You can, you can apply them as separate services, but I quite like the idea of having my whole application defined in one single file and then applying that whole file, knowing that Kubernetes will only change the things that I've changed. So it will look through all of the different services inside of my application. It will deploy load balances, deploy containers, um, uh, uh, but only things that I've changed will get actually deployed or, or changed. So I changed the Docker image that it's using. So it's, um, it's, 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 it's sent that to the, to the Kubernetes cluster, and the Kubernetes cluster is now going to start building with that new container image. So if I go uh, kubectl and say get pods, so this is in my cluster, get all the pods in my cluster, you can see that I've got one pod now which has been created. Now that definition, that, that deployment, it's created one single pod. And 
you can see it's a status of, of container creating. And if I say kubectl describe pods and then pass in the actual pod name, it will give me information about that pod. Um, so I can see the container ID that it's using, the container image that it's using. Um, and also it gives me some uh, log information about what it's doing. So it's successfully assigned it to a, a node. And now currently it's pulling the image. It's a big image, so it's going to take a little bit of time. After some time, I'll run uh, get pods. And, um, and eventually, I'll get this back. It will say, that pod is ready. One of one's ready. So I've got one single container running in a pod. And now if I want to scale that up, I could do that. Oh, I just want to mention one thing. Now I've got that one pod and I've got my load balancer, I could actually go and see that, that thing. So if I open up the load balancer, there's this thing in Kubernetes which I say is kube control uh, get services, and it lists all of the services inside of my uh, cluster. One of those services is going to be a load balancer, and you'll see it's got an internal IP and it's got an external IP as well. That's an external application load balancer in AWS. If I copy and paste that, and then paste it into a browser, that load balancer is listing on port 80. It's going to forward it to that particular container. There's my container image in Kubernetes. I could have multiple containers running and change where my load balancer is pointing to at will, apply that change, and all of a sudden, my load balancer will switch to different containers. So I can switch containers in and out really quickly. You can do blue-green deployments. You can do more complicated workflows and so forth. I've only got one of those containers. I might want to scale that. If I just go into that file, I just change the number of replicas from one to three, and then save that. Then go into command and say, uh, run the exact same command, which is uh, apply windows.yaml, that file. It will change my Windows app. That's changed. But it's not changed the service because I didn't make any modifications to my load balancer. And now, if I do kubectl get pods, instead of having one pod, I'll have three. Well, I've got one, actually, which is running, and I've got two, which are being created. And I could inspect each of those ones, those containers. I can go into each of those pods and look at the container image. I can get the logs for that container image. I can even go inside it and start executing commands directly inside of the container as well. If it's a bash, if it's a bash or if it's a Windows, I could go in there and start executing PowerShell. Um, so you can explore those containers. You can find out what's going on if they're not working or not running properly. Um, these obviously are creating or they're pulling their images. Eventually, I'll end up with three. And what will happen is my load balancing service now will just load balance across those three um, replicas. So if one of them fails for whatever reason, then the other two will, will change. Now, if for whatever reason in the system, someone kills one of those containers or deletes the, or removes the container or it crashes or whatever, Kubernetes knows that there needs to be three. So it will just create another one and replace it. And that's the power of Kubernetes. Like Once you define your infrastructure and your application, it's then Kubernetes' job to make sure that's what it builds. So if you go and manually kill these containers, Kubernetes will start creating them again. And so if I have three of these containers running, I can pretty much guarantee that those containers, especially if they're distributed on a cluster and they're deployed on different machines, even if that whole node fell down, there would still be some, uh, there would still be some containers running somewhere in my cluster. So it's a, it's, it's a really great way of building resiliency um, uh, especially if you've got a large enough cluster with enough nodes, then you're starting to build um, real resiliency inside of your applications. And so containers can fail and stop and start. It doesn't matter. 
Kubernetes will restart them and make sure that your application gets back to the position that you've defined inside of your YAML file. You don't have to use YAML, by the way. You could use JSON if you're crazy. Um, uh, you could also just execute it at CLI level as well. You could run commands directly in the CLI uh, and create services and that sort of thing as well. Um, again, I wouldn't do that, but I'm sure people do. Now, if I were to create a little bit more of a complicated application, um, there's a PDF system which I built actually in my old business, in my old company about 10 years ago. It's still running at a major company in the UK and it does a really simple thing. Um, and I was recently speaking to them about it because they were trying to convert it to .NET Core. And, uh, and the problem was the backend service, it basically has this thing which takes a PDF file and it uses system.drawing to do some random stuff with this PDF file. And it's really powerful. It's a really useful thing for this company to, to be able to modify and, and basically look it basically takes a PDF file and it reads the PDF file and converts it to text. It's like an OCR engine. They've built it. It's really powerful for what they do. It works really well. Um, they don't want to have to redevelop it. So they were wanting to try and containerize this application because it's, currently it's just sitting in virtual machines. And so they looked at, well, this, this is roughly how their application works. So they have a load balancer and that calls into a front end website where customers upload the PDF and then the um, the front-end website takes the PDF that's been uploaded and it forwards it to the .NET, the fullfat.NET legacy application, which then processes it and then uh, puts that information into a SQL database. Now, when they started, they wanted to containerize their SQL database. Um, I'd always advise against containerizing your databases. They instead used a SQL database uh, RDS, which is a, a database service. Um, I would advise doing that if, if you're at all possible, like stop having to manage your own uh, databases and start using a, a managed one. And so they then want to build this. So basically, I've got four pieces of infrastructure I need to create. A load balancer, a .NET Core front end running on Linux, a service, and then a .NET legacy application running on a Windows uh, node in a Kubernetes cluster. So this is what my YAML file for that looks like. Um, so I have... Hey, there we go. I have a, a deployment with a Windows application and a sort of a name, for, it's called Windows App. Uh, what's also important here? And then it's got an image that's reading from my, um, my ECR image, my container image. <laughs> I'm not gonna use Spotlight. Um, and uh, then it basically opens up port 80 on the bottom there. And um, what you'll see at the bottom there, it says that this particular image needs to be loaded onto a Windows node. So when it creates this container, it's going to run it on a Windows node. The next uh, portion of that Windows.core application is the frontend.net application. And it's almost identical. It's called something different. You'll see the app name is windows-core-app. Um, it's using a different image. That image is a .NET Core image, uh, which I built from Visual Studio. Um, that's listening on port 80 as well. And also I'm passing in at the bottom, if you can see it on line 55 at the bottom, I'm also passing in environmental variables. And this is a really useful thing. If you want to pass stuff into the containers, environmental variables is possibly the way you'll do it. And the thing that I'm passing in is the name of the service where my .NET application is going to live. And you'll see that I've called it api.default.svc.cluster.local. Basically that means that when I, create a, when I create a service, I'm going to call it API, 
And that I know because of the way that DNS works in Kubernetes, that that's what it will be called in DNS. So if any node inside of that cluster calls the, the, the DNS inside of Kubernetes with um, api.default.svc.cluster.local, it will go to a load balancer, which then directs it to the pod, which is running my Windows uh, application. Um, so this is really, these environmental variables are really useful to pass stuff in, database connection strings, uh, the names of SSM parameters or secrets. Um, I wouldn't obviously put usernames and passwords in these environmental variables, but definitely an SSM parameter, which you could then go and read inside of the application to get your secrets. Um, that would be a great way of, sort of piping in sort of information into these containers. And this particular container, you'll see at the bottom there on line 55, it says, oh, sorry, on line 58, this has got to be deployed onto a Linux node because it's a Linux container. Then the next thing I do is I create two different services. One, the top one is a load balancer, and that points to my .NET Core application, my basic front end. And then the other service doesn't have, it doesn't expose an external uh, API. It's not a load balancer, it's just a service. That's gonna be running in the, basically that's gonna be running inside the cluster. And what that's gonna generate for me is that is a service which has got a DNS entry in the cluster that I can call. So my application, if I want to call the other application, just uses that local DNS and can call that other application. Does that make sense? Um, so because the API has got the name, if you see the service on line 80, I've given the name API. If I change that name to API Jeff, then my DNS entry would be API Jeff.default.svc.cluster.local. Default there is the namespace that I've put it in. If you don't apply a namespace, it will go into the default namespace. Um, cool. And then this is my application. I upload a PDF, upload the image, and it forwards it to the correct, uh, the other application, which then goes off and processes it in a really sort of basic way. Um, so that's the way we sort of build networking between applications and different containers uh, through, it's effectively using DNS. Um, the cool thing is uh, this company realized that they could move away from actually using their, their pre-built uh, container and start using uh, a service called Textract, which allows them to do OCR on PDF forms. And they actually were able to create an API in .NET Core. Now we're sitting in a situation where they've got basically all their containers are .NET Core running on Linux, and they still have a load balancer and a service. But now because it's running all on .NET Core, we can start doing some interesting things. Um, we could run them in Fargate. You see with ECS, I had to go ECS and with EKS, I had to create nodes, places where stuff lives. Fargate is a container service where you don't have to create the nodes. Now, Fargate only runs Linux nodes. So if you want to deploy Linux of Windows applications, you can't do it on Fargate. That's why they actually have to refactor the, the Windows portion out of this if they want to run it on Fargate. But now they could take this application and they could run it on Fargate. Now, if you want to run it on Fargate, you could run that on ECS. There's a Fargate for ECS. Or as of today, there is also Fargate for EKS, which means instead of creating the nodes, you basically can create a cluster, and that cluster is of type Fargate. And then basically when you create your containers and so forth, it will deploy, as it's deploying your Kubernetes application, it will start deploying um, nodes, effectively manage nodes for you uh, using Fargate. So um, you don't have to create or manage the the, the infrastructure or the worker nodes yourself, they're gonna be created and provisioned for you as you deploy your containers. Um, so I'm just gonna quickly 
show you a, a blog where you can read a little bit more about this. Um, it's written by an incredible author. Uh, his name is my name, Martin Beebe, on Jeff Barr's blog. And it uh, it's basically talks to you about um, how you would set this up for EKS on Firegate. And it's only available if you want to use .NET Core applications which can run on Linux. You can't build Windows applications using this. But everything, I don't actually men mention .NET or Windows here, but rest assured, um, if you want to build this using .NET Core for Linux, you could absolutely do this. And it's, it's very straightforward. Um, again, you're using this uh, EKS uh, CTL to create your cluster. The difference is you pass this uh, parameter in saying Fargate, and it creates a cluster which basically, as you start deploying your Kubernetes applications to it, it's going to start spinning up uh, infrastructure for you without you having to create any worker nodes. Um, so this basically provides a whole demo about how this works. It's very straightforward and it's live in everywhere which supports uh, EKS as of today. Um, so, uh, all I will need to say is uh, thank you very much for listening. I've overrun by three minutes. Um, I've not had much luck with this switcher. There we go. Thank you very much for listening. Um, please do feedback in the, uh, in the application, rate this, uh, rate this session. Um, I'm at the Beebs on Twitter. Um, all of the links and so forth I've done, I'll tweet after this session. If you're on Twitter, please do go there. Um, and uh, if you really like this session, and you thought it was really good and valuable, please tweet me at the Beebs. If you hated it, if you think I've wasted your time, then please come and speak to me after. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed.